good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the first presentation, ETM Analytics and Treasury One of 2020, 2022. I'm um, going to hand over to Vichart now, who's going to say a few words, and then we'll move on to the presentation, which will be done by our Head of Research and Analytics, namely George Glenos. Thank you very much once again for joining us, and yes, enjoy the presentation. Over to you, Vichart. No, thanks, Quentin. Yeah, welcome, everybody. Um, we've just seen CPI released higher than expected. And obviously, if you're looking at the presentation's headline, it says monetary policy versus currencies. Obviously, it will be key this year to see what the Fed does with inflation running really hot and just a 7.5% year on year inflation that we just had um, and how it's impacted on the currency that ran, sort of ran to 15.10 this morning after the release just shot all the way back to 15.25 where we opened up for the morning. So I'm going to hand over to George to tell us a little bit more about what they think about monetary policy and currencies for the year. Over to you, George. Thanks, Vichard. Thanks, Quinn. Welcome, everybody. Uh, good to be presenting to you once more. Um, I think this is a, an important topic. It's an important topic because I don't know that uh, enough people understand the interplay between monetary policy and, and the role that it plays in determining general general currency direction. Uh, we believe that uh, currencies are a monetary variable and therefore, uh, by definition, monetary policy will have a, a significant influence on it. Uh, the purpose of today's presentation really is to unpack our thinking, uh, to give you a sense of what we look at, uh, to try and understand the impact that uh, policy changes are going to have on currencies. Um, it's become a buzzword. Uh, through the course of the past six months or so, uh, when people talk about uh, policy normalization, they might be referring to the Fed or they might be referring to uh, one of the other central banks around the world. But uh, in general, what uh, what they're effectively talking about is, is the end of the pandemic, uh, the, the switch over from a pandemic style economic environment into a more normal uh, economic environment. And, and of course, as you transition between one and the other, so your monetary policies and in fact your fiscal as well but in this particular instance we're focusing on monetary your monetary policy is going to need to um, uh, shift at, at the same time so it needs to reflect the new reality and the new reality is an economic environment which is going to be a little more robust uh, it's not going to need as much support uh, and of course it's going to require a little bit more in the way of, of active management to try and um, uh, keep price stability at the center of, of all decision making. So without further ado, let me jump straight into this presentation. I've got 30, uh, just over 30 slides. So I'm going to move through them reasonably quickly, but but slow enough for you guys to be able to uh, hopefully internalize all the points that we, we want to make. So just a couple of ground rules before we get going uh, for this analysis. And, and I think they one or two might surprise, but uh, they, they will in time become fairly obvious as to why. But, but the first rule is that uh, we believe that inflation and foreign exchange both reflect the purchasing power of a currency. Uh, so uh, as the second point suggests, if inflation is going up, it means that your effective rand is buying you less. Uh, in other words, things are becoming more expensive relative to the rand that you have in your pocket. Therefore, you can buy less. Same thing happens when the rand depreciates. If the rand depreciates, of course, uh, in hard currency terms, you are able to buy less. 
so uh, neither of those are desirable. You don't want high levels of inflation, uh, primarily because they uh, induce a level of instability into prices across an economy, but equally you don't want to see uh, a rand that is extremely volatile or losing a lot of ground because you know that in hard currency terms that means you're going backwards uh, with respect to wealth. But in terms of your consumptive power, it ultimately means uh, that you are able to purchase less. So you're losing purchasing power. Whether inflation is going up or the rand is depreciation or the rand is depreciating, it means that you are able to purchase less with every rand you have in your pocket. So they're in essence different sides of the very same coin. The thing that we need to remember is that currencies are also a relative game. So whilst it's true that we need to focus on our own uh, inflation dynamics, uh, so too do other countries around the world. And so currencies at the end of the day are a relative game. When we're focusing on dollar rand, that might be, well, as Vichard said, the, the US inflation numbers came out a little bit earlier and we've moved from 1512 back up to sort of 1525, but uh, that's not the point. The point is that uh, with all these crosses that you see here, you'll see that it's the rand versus the dollar, the rand versus the euro, the rand versus the pound or the yen or any other currency that you might be focused on. So it implies that you're focusing on one set of fundamentals versus another. It's not good enough just to focus on South African inflation. You need to focus on South African inflation. And in the case of, of the dollar, you would need to focus on US inflation as well. So Vichot was quite right to highlight uh, what's happened on uh, US inflation today, uh, primarily because it tells us what price dynamics are unfolding on that side uh, of, of the Atlantic. So uh, inflation in, in America is running rampant. It's not often that you find inflation in America running well above uh, inflation in South Africa, but that is what's happening at the moment. So domestic inflation is at 5.9, US inflation is at 7.5, I think I saw. Uh, and, and so the combination of that suggests that if anything, the RAND is is likely to be more resilient uh, from in, in, in terms of holding its its purchasing power than the dollar is. And, and so this is the reason why the Federal Reserve is looking to respond. Um, it doesn't like the idea of losing uh, too much purchasing power for its dollar. It ultimately means that uh, imports are, are going to become a lot more expensive if the dollar loses ground. And there is a, a degree uh, of of um, requirement, if you like, for the US to, to try and foster a stronger dollar environment. It is in their interests at the end of the day. So let's see what's been going on internationally on the inflation front, because it's obviously important. And, and so what we find is that whether you look at, at uh, global inflation, whether you look at high income or middle income countries, inflation has been rising across the board. Uh, so it's not a question of uh, South Africa having done anything wrong or America having done anything wrong. It's it's a case of inflation at this stage of the game is rising across the board. And um, th there's some interesting reasons as to why that has happened, and I'm going to unpack those in a bit. Uh, but it's important to obviously note, therefore, uh, being uh, currencies being a relative game, uh, you'll have a rise in inflation in South Africa, but you'll have rises in inflation elsewhere in the world. Net, net, it doesn't necessarily need to have a direct impact on your currency um, right, right from the word go. 
Inflation expectations in America equally are remaining extremely buoyant. Uh, they are the highest that they've been in a decade and uh, although we are seeing some signs that we are approaching a, a, a turning point in America for the time being, uh, this is the reason why the Federal Reserve has felt compelled to respond. And to respond, uh, they are looking at ending QE by March. Uh, thereafter, they're going to look at raising interest rates steadily through the course of the year. And towards the back end of this year, if the US economy is able to hold up okay, they're even talking about shrinking their balance sheet. Another way of putting that is reverse quantitative easing, uh, what they call quantitative tightening. Um, essentially, the all the um, assets that they purchased to put on their balance sheet, they're going to let them gradually mature and roll off their balance sheet such that their balance sheet shrinks. It's a way of withdrawing liquidity out of out of the economy. It also means that with uh, inflation expectations rising so strongly and the Federal Reserve looking to respond to those, that US interest rates are going to rise, not just at a policy level, but in the bond market as well. Now that's an important uh, development simply because um, the world pegs itself uh, against the U.S. tenure. The U.S. tenure is is seen as the global risk-free rate, if you like. And so many uh, bond markets around the world, including South Africa's, will benchmark itself uh, to some degree on the U.S. tenure. It's possibly one of the most important financial market indicators in the world. And so what happens to the U.S. tenure does matter, even for a country like South Africa, which has got uh, very little to do with uh, US monetary policy, uh, the movement in the US 10-year bond yield has vast implications for not just South Africa, but other emerging, other emerging markets as well. The reason why this, this inflation episode has kicked off has been the very strong response by the central banks uh, to fight against the effects of the pandemic. So the pandemic came into play in in uh, the end at the end of March in, in, in 2020 uh, and of course the lockdowns were something we've never witnessed or experienced before it was almost akin to a warlike situation where the economies quite literally stop uh, and and so in in such unprecedented times uh, the central banks in their wisdom decided that the best thing that they could do was to stimulate and stimulate extremely aggressively so that's what they did they jumped straight back into quantitative easing and they did so at the drop of a hat. Uh, literally from uh, one day to the next, they decided to conduct quantitative easing. It wasn't just America that decided to do that, it was central banks around the world. And so when you look at the uh, subheading to this particular chart, you'll notice all of those countries, they were all included in the, in, in the um, uh, conducting of ultra-loose monetary policy. And the combination of all of those to the aggregate balance sheet was tremendous. So in the space of just a year and a half, uh, they added something in the order of $12 trillion to their collective balance sheet. To give you some perspective as to how big that is, well, it took the very same central banks approximately 10 years to do that prior to the pandemic. So what took them 10 years previously, they managed to do in a year and a half. And so it's an enormous amount of, of stimulus and liquidity that got pushed into the global economy. And of course, it had implications for uh, the business cycle and the credit cycle. Now, that is what 
these central banks wanted to engineer. So the Federal Reserve went out of its way to try and bolster a new business cycle, and it did so quite successfully. So through this very aggressive monetary stimulation, and the, the Federal Reserve on its own, I think, accounted for about $4.5 trillion worth of, of quantitative easing. Um, on the basis of, of that money printing and pushing that into the economy, you can see the result. The result was the dollar liquidity cycle, which is that red line, um, punching almost vertically upwards, far steeper than anything we've seen in any previous cycle, going back all the way to the 1960s. So this was a dramatic event. It, it was a lot more aggressive than we've seen in any previous monetary easing cycle, and the effect was clear. Uh, to push that red line straight back up, in other words, to pump liquidity uh, back into the global economy. And uh, if you like, this is akin to a tidal chart. So you know that when the tide comes in, all boats float. Uh, and that's effectively what they wanted to do. They wanted to float all asset prices. They wanted to push financial markets higher with the express purpose of wanting to bolster balance sheets across the board, both uh, private sector as well as, as uh, public sector, and in so doing, uh, preventing banks and other financial institutions from having to write off a, a whole bunch of bad debts or loans or whatever it may be, thereby tightening a credit cycle even more. Had they not done so, we probably would have been uh, staring at something bigger than the, uh, than the Great Depression. Uh, and, and so uh, this was what they wanted to achieve and, and they did so quite successfully. The result, though, was to start a credit cycle, and that credit cycle uh, was quite significant uh, in that it pushed their money supply growth rates strongly upwards. Now, the, the, um, the importance of this can't be understated. Uh, inflation at the end of the day is a monetary variable. It cannot exist without growth in money supply. So if money supply doesn't increase, inflation cannot rise. So to the extent that the central bank efforts were able to engineer this big credit cycle, they did so through the creation of money and much of that money found its way into the real economy. It is measured in different versions of money supply. In this particular chart, we're focusing on, on M2. Uh, M2 is notes and coins as well as uh, credit obtained from, from the banks, the commercial banks themselves. There are uh, more aggregated versions of this, but uh, this serves uh, our purposes of illustrating what the, the central banks managed to, managed to achieve. So they generated some fairly strong levels of, of money supply growth in the US in particular. Uh, you were talking about money supply growth, which rose uh, to, to approximately 27% year on year. That is an enormous uh, growth rate for a country like America. And so, uh, although the others didn't match uh, and rose to about 15% uh, year on year, the point was that a lot of monetary space was created for inflation to take hold. Now, bear in mind the effects of quantitative easing in the first place. As I said to you, one of the effects is to try and bolster asset prices. The reason you bolster asset prices is to keep everybody's balance sheet uh, buoyant and, and alive and not contracting. And uh, as, as one does so, so it gives people the confidence to be able to borrow against that balance sheet and to be able to spend in the economy. So it plays a material role. Uh, the stronger the growth in money supply, 
the, the greater the probability that you will have an inflation episode. To give you some idea of, of what I'm referring to, just have a look at this chart of US uh, inflation versus money supply. We've lagged uh, money supply by uh, a few months. I think it's nine months. Uh, and we've plotted it against inflation. So you can see what happens when money supply increases fairly dramatically, so it drags uh, inflation higher. Uh, there have been periods where there have been modest dislocations in the past, and that's been a result of uh, an oil price shock or a, or a commodity price shock or whatever it may be, and it deviates a little bit, but eventually the red and the blue lines always come back together. In this particular instance, the blue line has dragged the red higher, but look at what's happened. The blue line has turned the corner and fallen straight back down again to far more normalized levels. And so this is part of the reason why uh, the Federal Reserve, along with uh, many other central banks around the world, uh, indicated that uh, the inflation episode that we're likely to experience will uh, in all likelihood be temp temporary. And, and so they are mindful of the inflation expectations like I showed you in, in one of the previous charts, uh, but they are also mindful of doing too much. Uh, if there is a danger, it's that the central banks become a little overzealous in uh, what they're communicating and what they choose to push out into uh, in, in terms of, of monetary tightening and, and overdo it. If they overdo it, uh, the, the negative feedback from a consumption investment general growth point of view is going to be fairly significant uh, and of course the effect of that will be um, a, a, a difficult economic climate all over again. So the central banks will be mindful of that. Uh, they are without doubt going to start hiking interest rates, the extent of which is going to depend on, on a combination of factors, one of them being of course uh, the strength of the underlying economy and how resilient it will be to that normalization. The second uh, will, will almost certainly be inflation uh, because ultimately that's what the central banks are targeting. Throughout this time, uh, the dollar has, uh, has, has traded in expensive territory. Uh, dollar investors have, uh, have, uh, have uh, been supported by the, the difficult global economy, the financial markets that have been a little uncertain, uh, and, and of course the, the lack of, of, um, the lack of, of uh, clear guidance on how policy is going to unfold and what the pandemic and how the pandemic is, is ultimately going to unfold. At this point, one would have to say that uh, confidence is gradually returning. Uh, that things are going to normalize and hence the central banks are doing what they're doing. Uh, but the, the dollar at this stage of the game has almost um, uh, been able to resist the temptation of, of depreciating along the lines of the inflation, uh, the inflation episode that the US is experiencing by virtue of the uncertainty that exists and uh, its safe haven status has therefore come back into play. But it need not remain that way. If I show you uh, the effective uh, Fed funds rate, uh, which has been adjusted for quantitative easing, which is the red line, uh, and I plot it against the trade weighted dollar, uh, and I've done that since 2009 because that's when effectively quantitative easing first came into play, uh, and, and you plot the two together, you can see that there is a relationship that exists between the two. Uh, typically, when your Fed funds rate uh, weakens fairly substantially or the Fed funds rate comes down, 
the trade-weighted dollar uh, equally loses a little bit of ground. Uh, under circumstances, under more no normal circumstances, and, and by normal I'm referring to non-pandemic circumstances, that blue line probably would have followed the red line a lot lower. Uh, it didn't because of the uncertainty that I spoke of in the previous chart. Now we're seeing that uh, Fed funds rate are starting to adjust it for quantitative easing, um, starting to, to head back up again. And as it heads back up again, the the need for the, the dollar to weaken substantially from these levels, uh, I guess, starts to dissipate a little bit. Add to that the fact that uh, by March, the Fed will look at stopping quantitative easing and will look at raising interest rates three to four times this year, as well as even uh, consider shrinking its balance sheet towards the end of the year, beginning of next, and you begin to realize that the dollar itself may not be in line to weaken all that much um, given the circumstances. For emerging markets, um, that understanding uh, is important. So if, if we are to believe that the dollar is not going to collapse in a heap, even though inflation is elevated, well, that holds implications for emerging markets. Equally, what holds implications for emerging market currencies is the way that asset prices behave more generally. And so I decided to, to give you some sense of the distortionary effects that quantitative easing can have on asset prices. And there's a very good reason why I've done this, but uh, I'll get to that in a second. Effectively, if you take uh, global uh, stocks, which is uh, the red and the blue line, uh, or if you have a look at uh, the US S&P 500, and you look at them as a ratio to GDP, what you would expect to see in the early, very early stages of, of this chart, you would expect to see them oscillating about that zero bound. In other words, you wouldn't expect uh, equity markets to deviate significantly from GDP because quite simply, it doesn't make all that much sense for it to do so. Uh, what we're effectively saying is that um, uh, stock markets are going or, or have the ability to deviate and perform substantially uh, better than the underlying economy in which they operate, which is a peculiar thought really, because I mean, how would that be possible? Well, the only way that's possible is if people are prepared to accept higher and higher levels of valuation. In other words, when something becomes expensive, you'll end up buying it anyway, uh, because you think it might go even higher. And the only reason why you'd think that would be the case is because of the distortionary effects that um, things like quantitative easing uh, tend to generate. Just remember that quantitative easing in and of itself is the pumping in of dollar liquidity into a closed system, which is the global economy. At some point, all of that money that's been printed up needs to be deployed somewhere. And so as it gets deployed into asset prices, and in this particular instance, equity markets, so they tend to deviate away from uh, the underlying GDP numbers. But equally, what we found is that it's not just uh, specific to, to equities. What we have found is that uh, a similar trend has emerged in commodities. And so we looked at uh, the commodity index uh, relative to the S&P 500, and we looked at a couple of measures of that. And, and what we found was really interesting in that the two oscillated very closely to each other, but they always mean reverted. And so long as they mean reverting, it means that over time, um, equity markets and commodity markets are moving 
roughly in sync with each other. So if the one is getting distorted by monetary policy, uh, the other is going to be distorted by monetary policy as well. Now, you might be asking, why on earth is he telling us all of this? Well, there's, there's a very good reason uh, in that emerging market uh, FX is, is directly uh, very, very sensitive to what happens to uh, equity markets more broadly, but also to commodity markets. Now, you look at South Africa. South Africa is a big commodity producer. So what happens to commodity markets matters to a, country, a, a currency like the RAND. Equally, what we have found is that there is a, quite a decent correlation that exists between equity markets more generally and the performance of emerging market FX. When equity markets are performing well, and um, overall levels of risk aversion are subdued, uh, emerging market currencies tend to perform well. The opposite is also true. So what you're looking at in this particular chart is um, a, a chart of the what they call the VIX. Um, it is, uh, in technical terms, the cost of hedging yourself against the collapse in US equities. Um, so they call it the fear factor index. We have, for the purposes of, of this particular chart, inverted it. So when it's when that red line is is going up, actually that is a reduction in in uh, risk aversion. Another way to think about it is uh, is to think about that red line as as a risk appetite chart. So the higher uh, the red line in the chart visually, uh, the the greater the appetite for risk. Um, to that, we have plotted uh, the emerging market FX index, and you can see that the two tend to move together. So, when equity markets are performing well and risk appetite is good, emerging market FX is performing well. Uh, by the same token, and and um, relative to the previous chart, um, we know that uh, we know that equities and commodities tend to move in lockstep with each other. So. Uh, for the rand it's a it's a it's a double uh, effect on the one hand you get a positive uh, impact of improved risk appetite on the other you get uh, also the benefit of of stronger commodity prices and so immediately you begin to see uh, how important what goes on at a monetary level globally is for the determination of currencies uh, as far flung a field as south africa so you might sit there thinking oh, South Africa is on the tip of Africa. What on earth do we have to do with global monetary policy? Actually, the answer is uh, we, we focus on it quite a lot. Uh, and, and, it's for these particular, uh, and it's for these particular reasons. So let's turn to South Africa's reality. Now, South Africa's reality is a little different to that of America. So um, as we heard a little bit earlier, uh, US inflation rose to 7.5%, while ours is sitting at 59 And if I run our inflation risk index, it's telling us that it's probably not going to go all that much higher. Maybe it breaks a little bit above the 6% mark, but there's certainly no uh, evidence that uh, domestic South African inflation is going to be surging substantially higher. And that's good news because it ultimately implies that there's a little bit more resilience uh, in the RAND than perhaps we've gotten used to in the past when South Africa's inflation was magnitudes higher than that of its trading partners. This time around, things are a little different. But the Saab uh, is responding and uh, they've already begun with, with rate hikes and we expect them to hike a lot more. Uh, the impact for, for South Africa, just as it is elsewhere in the world, 
um, is to, to influence the way that uh, consumption dynamics unfold as well as investment. Now, on the consumption front, we know full well that uh, higher interest rates are going to contain the extent to which money supply will grow uh, and the extent to which credit ex is extended in the domestic economy. In this particular chart, you're looking at growth in private sector credit extension, which is the blue line, but have a look at the left-hand axis and you'll see that it's inverted. So in other words, the higher that blue line has gone, uh, in fact, the lower the growth in private sector credit exchange extension is. And in this particular instance, you'll notice that it even dipped into negative territory. It coincides very squarely with the behavior of the trade balance. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the weaker the credit cycle, the more likely it is that South Africa will run a trade surplus again. Uh, you begin to understand uh, the the uh, significance of, a, of of monetary policy on real economic dynamics and how they ultimately play out in the performance of the currency. The um, the the weaker the consumption in a particular country, uh, the weaker its demand for imports, and that's the way that uh, it it plays out in in uh, the trade balance at the end of the day. In South Africa's case, we've also got uh, a very weak fixed investment uh, environment, mainly through years of, of maladministration. SOE's been run very poorly, bailouts after bailouts. Uh, essentially, debt was accumulated uh, at the expense of investments. Um, and the net result is that we've got a weak investment climate. Now, you, you, you combine that weak investment together with uh, the, the weak consumption and you understand why South African imports uh, have not been very strong and why South Africa is running a trade surplus. Um, in the event that the Reserve Bank continues with its rate hikes, uh, what you're effectively talking about is an environment which is going to restrict the extent to which fixed investment is going to take place in the future. So again, you begin to understand the interplay between monetary policy and the way that uh, the currency might behave. Why? Well, very simply, the higher the interest rates go, the more it will constrain uh, the performance of both consumption and investment, the more it will impact on things like the trade account through the reduction of imports um, uh, and, and the like. South Africa's also had a fiscal problem over recent years. The government has run itself very poorly. Uh, there's been a high degree of risk priced into uh, into uh, South African um, assets. And that is quite nicely reflected in this chart uh, with uh, South African bond yields plotted against its uh, fellow countries uh, for comparison. And you'll see, even by emerging market standards, South Africa, which is the second highest uh, in this particular chart, level pegging with Russia, but just below Brazil, has got interest rates that are, are running at fairly high levels. Now, you add to that the, the prospect that uh, the Reserve Bank is going to lift interest rates even more, and you can appreciate how these bond yields are unlikely to drop uh, any time soon. So we're likely to persist with 10-year bond yields hovering around the 10% mark. Now, that in itself might frighten some people that, uh, you know, corporates that, that may be wanting to issue uh, their own bonds, uh, but but over time, you'll find that that is probably a prudent stance by the Reserve Bank. And let's be thankful for the fact that interest rates in South Africa are at these more elevated levels because they do render uh, the South African rand a little more 
uh, a little more resilient. Let's not forget that there's good reason why there's so much risk priced into South Africa. And, you know, we don't have to look very far to see unemployment levels uh, sky high and rising. Um, and the structural problems that have manifested in South Africa underperforming uh, the global economy by quite some margin. So whether you look at um, the investment and business freedom score on the left-hand side, where South Africa has steadily been eroding away, or you have a look at uh, GDP, and you plot that GDP versus uh, the global GDP over the same time period, you begin to realize that uh, South Africa's issue is a structural one, not necessarily uh, an interest rate one. Uh, and that interest rates uh, shouldn't, at the end of the day, be utilized simply for the purposes of propping up a structural problem which the government ultimately needs to fix. But South Africa's economic reality uh, is neatly reflected in this chart um, where it's, it's slightly better at the moment. We're in an easier phase of the business cycle, but we know we're close to expanding and uh, we're a long way away from booming. So, so the economic reality is a weak one in South Africa. Um, notwithstanding that, we still think that rates are set to rise. Again, to reiterate the point, South Africa's problems are more structural than they are related to interest rates. And so we think that interest rates are going to be rising steadily. The Reserve Bank has interest rates rising all the way to uh, 6%, uh, a repo of 6%. That means uh, at least another 200 basis points worth of hikes from here. Uh, that may sound scary to you. I'm not of the belief that it goes all the way to a further 200 basis points, but I do think that they're on the right path uh, in, in order to just keep the rand stable, ensure that price stability returns to South Africa and that we don't escape the upper limit of the 3 to 6% inflation target band for too long. Um, and ultimately that will, will stand South Africa in very, very good stead. So um, looking at some of our, our proprietary, uh, proprietary models, just to give us a sense of of uh, the, the ultimate resilience that uh, the South African uh, economy enjoys and that the RAND enjoys, uh, you'll have a look at this chart and um, well, the important uh, line in, in this particular uh, presentation is the green one. Uh, you've seen monetary rectitude, uh, that is how good a job the Reserve Bank is doing at, at, uh, at, at protecting the RAND, you'll see that line dropping quite sharply. Now, ordinarily, that would be a cause for concern. Um, but we do know that in this particular instance, that happened because the Reserve Bank responded very strongly to the pandemic. Um, just like other central banks around the world uh, introduced things like quantitative easing, uh, the South African Reserve Bank dropped interest rates very, very aggressively. Interestingly, despite the fact that it fell on a square of 10, which is what you see on the left-hand axis, uh, this still left South Africa amongst the more resilient countries in the world by virtue of the fact that uh, other central banks had done so much more than what the Reserve Bank did. In fact, when you look at this chart, uh, as sharp as that drop in that green line is, um, it was even sharper for many other central banks around the world. And remember what I said to you right in the beginning of this presentation. At the end of the day, this is a relative game. Uh, currency is always a relative game. If we're looking at South Africa versus the U.S., and you consider that the U.S. embarked on extremely aggressive quantitative easing relative to a South African Reserve Bank that didn't go near quantitative easing to the same degree and, and literally only reduced interest rates, 
uh, aggressively. The, the situation is quite different. Uh, the South African Reserve Bank was still conservative by international standards. It's the reason why, and this is a very busy chart, um, and I don't expect you to go through every single one of these numbers, and it can be a bit overwhelming, but uh, what, what I want you to focus on is where South Africa ranks in the overall uh, resilience rankings, and you'll notice that we're in the top half, um, almost on the cusp of breaking into the top third. Now that's interesting because uh, you know we've, we we tend as South Africans to get very down on ourselves and 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 focus on on all the negativity, but when you focus on what other countries have done around the world, you begin to realise that actually South Africa hasn't done all that badly. Um, and so, you know, when you focus on, on things like um, uh, where we rank on, on the resilience rankings, you begin to realize that, well, you know, things could have been a whole lot worse. Uh, just cast your eye a little bit further down those rankings, and what you will find is that South Africa ranks above Japan, ranks above Europe, it ranks above the dollar, and many other central banks for that matter. So you, you, you're sitting in an interesting position right now where, uh, South Africa actually doesn't rank too badly on the resilience front. Um, of course, as I said to you earlier, uh, commodities play a, an important role in in uh, in South Africa's life, but um, equally they are related to what goes on with, with central banks around the world. We do know that since the speculation of uh, the end of quantitative easing in America, for example, sprang up, uh, we, we found that South Africa's terms of trade started to pull off. Of course, that coincides also with an oil price that started to shoot higher. Um, and, and so uh, terms of trade have weakened a little bit, but they are still supportive and they are stronger than they were at the start of this pandemic. So, so again, uh, the resilience numbers uh, place South Africa in the top of this table. In terms of trade for the time being, um, thanks to commodity prices being quite buoyant, are still supportive for the RAND. It ultimately means that uh, due to South Africa's monetary policy uh, and and the, the weakness of, of the domestic economy, we're sitting with a current account which is in surplus um, and quite a healthy surplus and likely to remain there for the time being. Um, and ultimately, uh, we do know that as the uh, Reserve Bank uh, continues down its path of hiking, that it's going to protect things like the carry attractiveness of the country. Now, um, this is an important one too, because uh, South Africa ranks actually quite highly on this uh, on this particular measure. Uh, if you have a look at the blue line, the blue line is South Africa's carry attractiveness. Um, relative to the EM average, we, we're there or thereabouts, uh, roughly similar score out of 10, uh, which is the left-hand axis again, and substantially higher than the developed market average. So versus the likes of, of the dollar, versus the likes of the euro, uh, emerging markets for the time being are still okay. Um, it's the reason why the RAND might be confounding a lot of people in its in its strength that we've seen recently. It's the reason why, you know, we, we've we able to, and I, I can't see a live screen at the moment, but uh, that the RAND didn't bomb significantly weaker to 15.30 and weaken to 15.40 on the back of, of these uh, US inflation numbers today. So um, carry attractiveness at this stage of the game is holding up okay. If you want to see where South Africa ranks in carry attractiveness, we rank third out of 22 countries. Look at the three countries that sit at the bottom of this table and you'll understand 
why uh, the RAND still has a little bit of resilience to it and why the Reserve Bank's uh, actions of, of choosing to lift interest rates uh, roughly at the same time as as the US um, and 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 uh, the UK, Europe is still waiting to take off. But the fact that the Reserve Bank is doing what it's doing is is likely to protect its position uh, on this rung. And so this does two things. Uh, on the one hand, uh, South Africa's high interest rates tends to dissuade negative speculation against the rand. On the other, it actually helps attract some foreigners to South Africa to invest into uh, South Africa's uh, very attractive interest rates. And again, you begin to understand the role that monetary policy plays in determining how uh, the South African rand is going to perform. Uh, with respect to uh, valuation, uh, it's also important to note that South Africa at this stage carries with it uh, a fairly deep discount uh, for foreigners. Uh, if foreigners want to buy into South Africa at the moment, uh, they, they would be buying in at reasonably attractive rates. Um, their currency that they're buying into right now is discounted uh, to the tune of at least, uh, you know, anywhere between 5 and 10%. Um, uh, the reason why you're talking about a, a rand dollar that's undervalued by 20 is partly a function of the dollar that is overvalued by anywhere between 10 and 15. A uh, similar sort of uh, situation exists with the euro. So on to our final couple of slides, uh, just to give you an update on our rand sentiment indicator, it has uh, risen back up to neutral territory. Uh, so we're talking about levels in, in six to nine months time being uh, similar-ish to where we are at the moment um, and, and so I think that's that's uh, an important uh, thing to note. Uh, it means that when you look at all the preceding charts that I've, I've showed you where uh, you are effectively um, talking about the interplay between monetary policy and, and the behavior of the RAND, you know that the Reserve Bank is going about it the right way to try and preserve the value of the RAND and, and to do uh, a, a decent job on that. Um, with regards to uh, resilience uh, versus, uh, this this might look like a complicated chart, it really isn't. Uh, the vertical axis is the degree of over or undervaluation. So if you're below the horizontal line, that means you, you are undervalued. Um, the horizontal line from left to right means how fragile you are on the far left to how robust you are on the far right. Clearly, there aren't many countries that are robust uh, and to the right of the scale, most countries are sitting um, in, in the fragile position. But look at where South Africa sits. Um, it's far less fragile than many other countries in the world. And so, again, um, the Reserve Bank is contributing to that uh, and, and probably has quite a lot of work to do because the next chart shows that from a monetary point of view, it can hike rates quite a bit more um, in order to in, in order to restore some level of monetary rectitude. So, uh, rand at this point not particularly undervalued relative to some of the other currencies in the world, but um, a little bit uh, too low on the monetary rectitude score. Uh, remember, I showed you that green line that had dropped very very sharply, but we spoke about the Reserve Bank starting to hike now. So, through the course of the next few uh, central bank meetings you'll see that blue diamond um, gradually or blue triangle gradually shifting to the right um, helping the South African uh, RAND regain some resilience. So a few final comments and then I'll open up for some some questions. 
monetary policy the world over is normalizing. We know that uh, the Federal Reserve has told us they're going to do that. Uh, the, the Bank of England is doing that already, and the ECB plans to do so uh, in, in the months ahead. Um, other central banks around the world are, are effectively doing something similar. Uh, it's just a matter of time until they embark on it. Most uh, emerging markets are, in fact, uh, already in the process of hiking, uh, and, and South Africa is just one of those. So it holds consequences for asset prices and commodities. At the moment, asset prices and commodities are still benefiting from the hangover of all the quantitative easing that was that was uh, introduced into the global economy uh, shortly after the pandemic began and right straight through the, the middle of the pandemic. It means that those asset prices and commodity prices remain buoyant for a little bit longer. From a carry perspective, that's really good news uh, for the RAND. Um, not only is the Reserve Bank looking at hiking interest rates, but we are a commodity currency, and so RAND can remain resilient for a little bit longer. I'm not surprised by the way that it's behaving at the moment. The danger, if there is a danger, is that uh, these global central banks perhaps uh, are, are overzealous in their response to, uh, to the normalization. Uh, perhaps they see an economy that's running very strongly and believe that it can uh, withstand further um, interest rate hikes and, and policy normalization and they push it too far. Uh, should they do that, uh, that's when you risk a, a major correction in stock markets. Um, equally, you'll see a big correction in commodity prices. And that's when you'll be thankful that the Reserve Bank moved preemptively to hike interest rates because the action of raising interest rates uh, in order to shield your currency against that, uh, against that eventuality um, at the end of the day will prevent or, or, or um, or assist the Reserve Bank in not having to do a lot more at a much later stage than would otherwise have been the case. So emerging market currencies are, are at risk depending on the degree of tightening that the central banks around the world uh, introduce, but we think that is a second half of 2022 story. Uh, so we, we don't think that that is, is something to be afraid of in the here and now, although markets are forward-looking uh, we don't know that uh, that forward-looking uh, environment is going to be um, is going to be that disastrous in the here and now. For the time being, earnings results are still pretty strong. Uh, growth data that's coming out of these developed markets is is holding up quite well. Uh, the central banks are talking a very positive tune um, and and uh, effectively making the point well that the only reason why they're normalising is because they're. Uh, background economies allow them to. And so we, again, just to reiterate, we don't think that uh, any uh, major wobble in emerging market currencies materializes in the first half of this year. We think that it's a second half of 2022 story. And with that, I'm going to park this presentation and I'm happy to take any questions if there are any. Um, Quinn Vickard, I'll hand back to yeah. you. Yeah, George, thank you very much for that insight. Um, Sean's got a question here that actually speaks to some of the, the research and, the, and the, the chats that the analysts have had, um, and quite vigorous chats, and that's supply chain issues. Uh, Sean, Sean's question is as follows. How much of the inflation increase do you think is due to supply chain issues? Yeah, so um, again, at, at its core, we tend to look at inflation as a monetary dynamic. Okay, so let me just unpack it. It's not to say that, that supply chain uh, disruptions don't impact on inflation. It absolutely does. But, but here's the context, and the context matters. 
if you do not have um, the monetary space for inflation to take hold and you get a supply chain shock that hits your system, uh, you, you, will, you will sustain that supply chain shock. Uh, those costs will, will certainly come through the, the economy and they will be severe. Um, it, they will be captured, technically speaking, in the CPI numbers almost immediately because they are costs that are being paid. But here's what happens. The effects of it are not very long lasting. Why? Because if you don't have money supply growth strong enough to accommodate both growth and inflation, and you can only accommodate inflation, uh, you tend to find recessionary pressures building up elsewhere in the system. So it is important to pay attention to things like the supply chain uh, dynamics, but it's equally, if not more important, to pay attention to what's going on at a monetary level. Without that monetary space, the, the medium to longer term effects of the supply chain disruptions just wouldn't manifest anywhere near to the same degree as they have. So, you know, that's, that would be my response is that uh, it's not that we don't pay attention to that, but that's not really a monetary uh, development so much as it is a disruption due to the pandemic. So uh, in, in terms of being true to the, the topic of today's uh, to today's presentation where we focus specifically on the effects of monetary policy on inflation, um, you need to appreciate that monetary policy will dictate how much space there is for inflation to take hold um, and then you'll get a shock and, and, and this time around it's a supply chain shock. The next time around it might be an oil price shock. Well, we've had both of those actually, uh, but you know, next time around it might be a different kind of shock, a commodity price shock or whatever it may be. Uh, there, there are many different ways that uh, a system can get shocked from an inflation perspective, but how long that shock lasts is is very uh, determined by the, the growth in money supply and whether that money environment uh, allows, gives that uh, inflation shock the space with which to manifest. In this particular instance, thanks to the, the actions of the central banks, the big central banks around the world, they created exactly that space. That was the purpose that that's the reason why I brought up that, that chart of, of money supply M2 to show you just how strong and outsized the, the big jump in money supply growth was. Um, but equally, how that money supply growth is, is coming back down again, definitely in the US, which is why, you know, yes, supply chain issues are, are, have been allowed to manifest at a monetary level because of the actions of the central bank those we anticipate will, will gradually um, dissipate through the remainder of this year, partly because money supply, uh, uh, monetary dynamics are going to normalize, that's the first, and second because, you know, we, we're coming to hopefully the end of this pandemic and, and supply chain logistics uh, are, are going to dissipate as well. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Uh, Vichard, do you have any other, other questions? I mean, if anybody's got a question, otherwise, George, would you mind if I post, pose one? Of course. Um, George, the, the financial markets are notorious for overestimating the, the level of inflation or the, or the level of rate hikes that are priced in or notorious for underestimating them as well. I mean, in your opinion, where do you see the, the pressures now? Do you see the financial markets as they currently stand and the pricing in them as being overzealous potentially to the top side? Yeah, I, th I, th I think they're pushing the boundaries, um, at, in my opinion. Um, I, I think this global economy, and, and, and this is the difficulty, 
you know, with each passing cycle of very aggressive monetary loosening, what the, the, the moral hazard that comes attached to that is the, the, the global buildup in debt. Um, and, and so you've seen that in this particular instance as well. Through this pandemic, debt levels around the world, whether it be private sector, governments, um, or, or financial institutions across the board, uh, you have found that um, global debt levels have risen. And they've risen by trillions. I'm not saying that they've risen by a few billion. They've risen by trillions. And so what ultimately happens is that uh, the more debt you amass in a particular economy, the more vulnerable uh, that economy becomes to any changes in monetary policy. So if you, just like a normal household, if you were holding substantially higher levels of debt than you did five years ago and interest rates suddenly jump uh, by a few percent, uh, of course, the the impact on your cash flow is going to be significant. Well, the very same thing applies to a, an economy, and that's uh, you know, private sector across government and, and others. Uh, so, so ultimately, uh, the difficulty in in just comparing this cycle to previous cycles is that this cycle we have higher levels of debt. Therefore, uh, any normalisation that takes place this time round um, is needs to take take place with a high degree of sensitivity to the impact that it might have on um, consumption as well as investment by virtue of the fact that there's more debt in the system. Uh, so, so ultimately, I, I think, and, and it's uh, our assessment um, at ETM that uh, because of the high levels of debt, uh, it's not going to be possible to normalize monetary policy to the full extent of what the markets are currently priced in have priced in. Uh, they're looking at it uh, more at face value when you when you start to delve into the underlying economic dynamics a little bit more you begin to realize that for them to normalize to the full extent of what the market is going to price in raises the risk quite significantly of a big uh, a degree of volatility in, in financial markets both equity and commodities. Now that's obviously possible uh, and that's the risk and I highlighted that risk in one of the charts is that uh, the, one of the, the central banks become overzealous in the way that they approach monetary tightening. But in my experience, uh, in the past uh, 10, 12 years, dealing with central banks and understanding the way that they conduct quantitative easing and the reasons why they did it in the first place and the protection of balance sheets, I think central banks are a lot more sensitive uh, to to the environment than you know what they necessarily portray. So there's a very interesting tool that central banks tend to use, and that is uh, the the communication tools that uh, uh, that they utilise to communicate with the rest of the market. So uh, quite often they like to talk a, a tough game so that they change perceptions in the market so that uh, your investors, financial markets tend to move towards that perception and in so doing, they do some of the work for the central bank already. In other words, if you're pricing in higher interest rates by pricing bonds and things and, and, and everything else for those higher interest rates, uh, already the tightening has begun. Um, and, and that's essentially what they do. So they, they talk a tough game in the hope that that tough game talk uh, allows them not to act as tough further down the line. And that's where we're at at the moment. Uh, I think they're talking quite tough. Um, I'm, I'm far from convinced that they will be able to uh, to implement uh, exactly what the, the financial markets have got priced in and in fact the kind of guidance that they've given so far.
wage increase in the US that will be in line with inflation as an effect of higher inflation? What do you think the short-term effect, if yes, and what will be the effect if not? Yeah, so um, definitely there will be higher wage increases in America. Uh, if you have a look at their, um, if you have a look at their, um, um, the, the tightness of their labor market, uh, you begin to realize that they are heading towards full employment. Um, you're talking about uh, unemployment rate that's you know headed towards the mid threes. That is tight. That is very tight. And so uh, you look at some of the other uh, labor market dynamics in America and you, you realize that um, the, the negotiating power uh, is, is tilting gradually a little bit more towards the employees uh, rather than the employers. Um, equally, uh, job openings are uh, at the highest they've been in um, a very, very long time. So, so the labor market is tight and I think wage increases are going to filter through there. It's a function of uh, those very high inflation expectations that you see. Um, again, um, the US for them, lucky for them, they get to, to operate in, in a slightly different world to the rest of us in that uh, they have the, they, they have the, the fortune of uh, owning the dollar and the dollar is a safe haven currency. At the end of the day, um, the, the Federal Reserve is seen as the, the lender of last resort uh, across the world. And so, you know, just because they've got this price instability right now, it doesn't automatically translate into a weaker dollar. It does probably count against the dollar strengthening a lot more. Uh, the strength of their credit cycle equally is the reason why they're running such a huge trade deficit. Um, so, so for all of those reasons, uh, you know, the the inflation uh, the inflation picture there probably won't translate directly into a, a significantly weaker dollar. But yes, I, I am expecting some some fairly hefty wage increases, probably not quite to match inflation, but not far off. Uh, I do think that that's a, a realistic expectation in America. Okay. Do we have any other questions? So, yeah, thank you so much, George, for the presentation. Sure, I hope everybody on the webinar found it very interesting like we do. Um, thanks for attending and we look forward to hosting you once again down the line. Thank you very much. Yes, and thank you to, thanks, thank you to George. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your time.